0: nz trust us the least. But why do they trust us the least? Were they burned? Did we do something wrong? $68 trillion will transfer to the next generation. How are you going to protect those assets?
1: GDC is becoming a bit of an outdated term.
2: A real desire to kind of bring those second story advisors on board I look at it, we're not cool.
0: We're not as sexy as a Robin Hood or some of these other more dynamic. yourself, (laughs) Dan. (laughs) Gamification of investing, as I'll call it. Not in our investors' favor.
1: Life insurance should be long-term care. Whatever it is, so many advisors are afraid of it.
2: The stopping and starting of virtual, it makes the business chunky.
3: What is AUM? It's fees for assets under management. Do advisors manage
1: the assets? They don't. I've even heard somebody promoting seminars on TikTok. I'll drink to normal.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Cappelletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview.
2: This is Chris Melton. National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you.
5: Hi, this is Janet Cappelletti, the Managing Director of Research for as Partners and the creator of bankchannelresearch.com with a wrap-up of the year 2021. It's pretty safe to say that overall, this has been a surprisingly successful year in light of our expectations at the end of 2020. In fact, every month, household revenue penetration has come over the same month the previous year, starting with modest growth in January and February and then in the double digits, March through November, banks and credit unions also reported growth in FC productivity and the cumulative year-to-date FC productivity put a new heights. And as of November, the average year-to-date productivity per rep is over half a million dollars for the first time. This is 23% over last year and 20% over the previous record in November 2018. Much success, of course, is attributed to managed money growth. As of November, total advisory revenue was nearly 25% over 2020. The top quartile for advisory revenue as percent of total program revenue is at 63%. We found programs in the top quartile overall generated one-third more revenue than the programs beneath this mark. Since 2016, monthly transactional revenue per rep has fluctuated little, lingering around $14,000, while recurring revenue has flourished, growing from $21,000 per month in 2016 $33,000 in 2021. I'd like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing much of the data used in this analysis, and I'd like to turn it over to Scott and Bob.
3: Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis. I will be your host, along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself shortly. So this is the episode we do every year that assesses what we've learned from the year we've just concluded and predicts what's to come in the year ahead. We'll fact check ourselves in about a year, you guys, to see how well we do here. <laughs> so for this episode, we're joined by executives leading the charge in three third-party broker dealers that serve our channel. And yeah, they're all competitors, but more importantly, we're all friends and colleagues trying earnestly to make our channel more competitive in the overall financial services landscape. So that's the spirit by which we're going to be having this discussion and work together going forward. So with that, let me turn it over to Bob, who will introduce himself and then have our panelists introduce themselves. Bob?
6: Thanks, Scott. And again, welcome to everyone. This is our December taping You'll probably be listening to this sometime in January, so Happy New Year, and I hope you had a great holiday. (laughs) I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. Today, as always, we have a great panel that we really want to thank and appreciate for joining us today. We'd also like to thank the BISA for their partnership in these podcasts. And for all things BISA-related, check out bisanet.org for more information about everything that goes on with BISA, including the upcoming annual convention in late February. So let's get into it right now and meet our panel. And let's start off with Chris. Hello, all. Chris Melton
2: from Ameriprise Financial Institution Group. It's great to be here. And as Bob said, it's probably a new year for you. We hope you're having a great new year. And we're looking forward to a great 2022. And we hope you enjoy today's podcast, sponsored by BISA.
1: All right, let's go to Jim. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. My name is Jim Norwood. I'm the president of the Financial Institution Division at Securities America. Very quick background, been in the industry for over 35 years, and the vast majority of that time has been spent working with very large broker-dealers supporting financial institutions. Specifically, my role is to make sure that we focus on our new business side as well as our existing business side. So I'm responsible for new business development and making sure that our programs continue to grow. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. And now on to Dan.
0: Good morning, everyone, and hope you had a happy new year. My name is Dan O'Brien, and my role is I head up enterprise and institutional sales for LPL Financial. Uh, Really excited to be here today to share some time with the group here and excited to get
6: started and have a great discussion. And thank all three of you. I know we had some fun with that. It's December 22nd, and we're wishing everyone a happy new year. I'm not sure if this will make the podcast, but I'm throwing it in there anyway. In any event, let's move on to our first question with Scott. All right. Yeah,
3: thanks, Bob. So, you know, clearly 2021 was a very good year for our channel, right, for the industry overall. When we look at our channel, household revenue penetration, on average, was up 21%, for example. That's over 2020. Advisor revenue generation, on average, is up 23% over 2020. An advisory business, which has been a focus of our channel, has, has grown significantly this year as well, or in 2021. So, Chris, let me have you lead off on this question. So other than the market tailwind, obviously, we've had the wind at our backs with the market. But other than that, what do you attribute the success of this year to, And then after that, I'd like you to follow on with your thoughts about what will be the biggest challenges in maintaining the momentum we have in 2021 as we go into 2022.
2: Yes, Scott, as we look at our numbers and look at our programs and really across all channels at Ameriprise, but specifically in the financial institution channel, you can't ignore COVID coming out of, if you will, 2020 and that pivot to virtual, which had some impact certainly on the business But I really think what we're seeing is the benefit of a lot of hard work stretching back over three to five years, where you know, in our channel, across all the broker-dealers, really, as you go into the industry and you talk, people are talking about book segmentation. They're talking about service-level agreements. And we're finally getting a move in that direction, which is helping advisors focus on the areas where they can add greatest value and focus on their books of business in a way that's more efficient than they did in the past. I, I think that's just a giant part of this. We're benefiting from a lot of hard work. That a lot of folks have been doing over the past three to five years now you start this pivot into the new year as we go forward i think COVID's is going to be a challenge again i think the stopping and starting a virtual movement of people it makes the business chunky i think when we were all locked down and got used to it we really were buckled into our seats in front of our desk and knocking it out i think as you pivot back to live it's a little change in your rhythm and then you can't ignore what's going on in the economy as well there's a number of things affecting the economy That's uncertainty. Uncertainty affects the markets. Uncertainty affects how investors think. So I think that's our biggest challenge going into next year is just the battle rhythm of the economy
3: and COVID. Obviously valid points. So Jim, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. A few things come to mind when I think about what besides the market activity, the tailwinds that we had, what contributed to the success overall, and certainly at our firm we've had record years across the board. As a division, we've had a record year. Most of our programs had record years. So that's exciting. But really what contributed to that aside from just market, I'd probably think about four different things. One is just to piggyback on what Chris said, the increased level of communication that's out there. Never before has there been such a focus on communicating with your clients, right? So making sure that you don't just do the traditional, hey, I'm going to call you every six months or something. This needs to happen at a much higher rate, and it has. And then when you think about all the uncertainties in the market right now going forward, that's going to have to happen continuing into 2022, right? So we've got inflation rates that are over 6%, and that's created a lot of uncertainty in terms of, well, how do I make up for that? Savings rates aren't going to do it. So it's a tremendous opportunity for financial advisors and banks and credit unions to go reach out to those clients and members and really talk about, we got to beat inflation, right? If it's at 6%, if you're at 0 or 1%, you're losing 5% or 6%. So you have to come up with new solutions to do that. So that's a big part of those ongoing conversations that have to happen. What's interesting about the pandemic is Zoom and virtual meetings became such a big deal in the last couple of years. But when you think about the in-person meetings versus a Zoom meeting, you know, in-person meetings were taken an hour, an hour and a half. The Zoom meetings created a lot of efficiency where all of a sudden the time that you're meeting with your clients shrank. So now you're having more efficient meetings where you're dealing with video conferencing with your clients, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, somewhere in that nature. So all of a sudden the efficiency model went up by default, which is exciting because it just created more opportunities for advisors to really be doing what they should be doing. So that's one thing I'll I'll piggyback again on what Chris said. The managed money piece has been big and really that trend started a long time ago. But for those people that were on the fence, looking at the way they manage their business, managed money all of a sudden became a much bigger part of it. And they're starting to reap the benefits. If they started at the beginning of the pandemic, they're starting to play some dividends now. The third thing I'll mention is the blocking and tackling, getting back to just some of the basics. And we do a lot in coaching our programs and working with our programs to do some of the basic things. Time permitting, I'll go into more details on what that could look like. But the last thing I would just add is just the embracing of technology overall. So many tools were already in existence. The underpinnings of technology were already out there, but we accelerated the putting them into action part of it. So, so much new technology has been out there, whether it's the e-signature adoption, the texting capabilities, automated operation solutions, digital interactions, among many, many other things. So those are four things I think that help contribute. And then I'll give Dan a chance to contribute to that, but I got a couple of things as to what the biggest challenges may be, but I'd love to have Dan contribute to some of the other things. Great,
0: thanks Jim. Yeah, and Chris and Jim are spot on with the overall advancement and embracement of technology. That has been a critical success factor, I think for our advisor productivities, our program productivities, that our advisors have really been forced to embrace these newer technologies and aid them in their client discussions. So part of what we've been working on is to take that football and run it further down the field and provide the best of breed technologies and integrations with third parties, whether it's financial planning, digital signature, model management tools, All of these things built into a common platform, which enable our advisors to open up, fund, and trade an account in under five minutes. So the efficiency models and productivity levels are only going up, and that's good for all of us in helping our advisors have better interactions with their clients and building a greater share of wallet with them. One of the things we saw, I think that was also a tailwind, Scott and Bob, is trust in our financial institutions. If you look at a couple of different surveys that are out there, has increased during the pandemic. That's usually weighted towards the older generations, whether it's the baby boomers or Gen Xers like myself. But a challenge in that is Gen Z really doesn't see that as well, right? And we can talk about that when we get to what next, next gen looks like. But the pandemic was a way for advisors and clients to really embrace their financial institution and use that as a safe haven, if you will, for them to protect their assets. Now in challenges, there's a number of different things I think that we're gonna see. Jim hit it on the head with inflation. We think that that's going to be a factor. Six percent is about right, but we've got a whole generation that's never seen something like this in 40 years, right? So how are advisors and clients going to account for that on a go-forward basis? That's certainly something to consider next year. Of course, the declining branch traffic is going to be a factor, and talent and recruiting that always seems to be a challenge for us. And when we get into talking about next gen, I think we can delve into that a little bit further about what are we gonna do from here as our advisors continue to age and we don't really have the replacements that we need to currently serve our demand.
3: Well, so there's a lot of good stuff just thrown on the table, right? And there are some common threads in all that. And I think it's worth reinforcing some of those messages. One is that ironically, as we look across our channel at the advisors specifically, There's still a fairly significant chunk of advisors who haven't fully embraced technology for the efficiencies that can be gained. And it's amazing when you look at those that have versus those that haven't, there is literally about a 2x productivity increase once you fully embrace technology. And so COVID has helped push that forward a bit, but it's still always shocking to me how there are still laggers right? Amazing. So the other interesting thing, and you each referred to it, but Jim, you said it specifically is contact, the outreach to clients. When you combine the fact that the pandemic has made at least the good advisors interact with their clients a lot more and enabled, because of that increased contact interaction, enable them to gather more assets away from those other advisors that haven't done that, that's been a game changer for some practices And that combined with the efficiencies gained from virtual meetings and the good advisors that we see know and have defined specifically which meetings they're going to hold virtually and which meetings they're going to hold live. But they also realize based on that balance, the efficiencies gained, the time gained in not doing all meetings live. And they're using that time to make more outreach and solidify those relationships with clients continue the discovery process relative to what's important to those clients, what's driving their financial needs and decisions, et cetera. Right. So that's some of the silver lining that has come out of COVID. And Dan, you mentioned declining brands traffic. I think that's a positive because these institutions aren't losing clients. The clients are just interacting with the institutions in different ways. And the interaction is now digital. Well, you can be more efficient in that framework, right? Data mining is more important than ever. But you can easily identify opportunities coming out of the data now. And let's face it, the best advisors, what type of clients do they want to add to their book? Not the typical walk-in branch traffic, but the kind that gets referred to them or sourced by them from internal partners in the institution like loan officers, et cetera, right? That's how the good advisors are building their book, not based on branch traffic. So the old metrics we used to use, you know, how many advisors do you need? Well, let's see how many branches you need covered. They're at the window, Right you can run a very efficient practice remotely, almost 80% remotely at this point. And it's been proven in the pandemic. So any other predictions? I think you guys all nailed it with inflation. I mean, that's going to be a big challenge and how the economy acts to that inflation. And we've been, like I said, in a tailwind scenario with the market at our back and that might change. And that's, that's going to be a big game changer too. So we'll have some challenges, Dan.
0: Yeah. The other thing I think we can't ignore is the M&A super cycle that continues to persist, right? So we probably have about a dozen of these ongoing right now, where we've got programs that are trying to decide how to structure the program of the future and considering things like, well, I've got a bank with a managed program merging with a dual employee program. How do I structure comp, staffing? What do I do with integrating retail wealth and private banking or wealth management? all while operating under a pandemic with the Fed dragging its feet and getting these mergers and acquisitions approved. So we're spending a lot of time with our programs, giving them that consultative advice and thought leadership and some best practices on what that program of the future is going to look like. So they can structure it now and position themselves for 2022 and beyond.
3: I'm really curious to see if there are going to be acquisition, more acquisitions of RIAs because that's the direction our business is going in, right? So that, that'll be interesting too. Chris, you have some thoughts? Yeah, I do. I think
2: what Dan said is exactly spot on. The other thing we're hearing from the wealth management and the bankers is a real desire to bring those second story advisors on board and integrate them much more so into the private bank and the wealth solution together, really get them working together and we've had great success recruiting, you know, multiple million dollar teams into our institutions but they're not attracted any longer to the big banks, which you know it's basically a 1-800 number for a, a great commercial customer in the central Georgia area, but they love the successful community banks that can still have build relationships and that they can partner with the bankers. So we're seeing some great success with that as well. And that leads on top of the conversation that both Jim and Dan talked about with aging advisors and things of that nature. So there's a willingness on the part of the bankers in the first time, I think, in a long time over the last three to five years to really think about this business differently and to grow it outside the walls of, of the branch, right? which is what everybody. Said here.
6: Let me crash in here for a quick second and ask also if anyone has any predictions about the protection industry. You know, I always have to squeeze a question in about that. And we thought the pandemic was going to have a positive effect on it, and it did halfway through, but it seems that it's waning yet again. Anybody have a thought? And then I know Jimmy had an add-on as well.
2: Well, I, I'll, I'll jump in real quick and say that. The protection side of the business has never grown very well for years and years because we haven't been focused on doing advice and planning for the most part for a lot of years. That is changing now, and it's changed a lot over the last three to five years. I'll let Jim or Dan pop in. So I think its day is yet to come, driven by but the advice.
1: Chris, I think you're exactly right. You know the the protection, which is the new name for insurance, right? So protection is actually critical in any part of a plan, right? You can't have a comprehensive financial plan without including protection and insurance as part of that. So that could be life insurance, could be long-term care, whatever it is, it's a great opportunity. So it still continues to be the great opportunity because so many advisors are afraid of it. And the truth is it's not that complicated. And they're afraid of the application process. It might look a little bit different, right? They're afraid of turning an investment guy into an insurance guy. They think that's a whole different world. And it really isn't because it's all part of the same conversation. So the key is to really have good supporting resources that will help an advisor actually get comfortable in that business, whether it's the broker dealer or what I refer to as wealth management firms or a third party, they're out there, they exist. And they simplify the process for those advisors that think this is cumbersome because it's really not. So I look at that as one of the biggest opportunities going forward.
3: Thanks for bringing that up, Bob. And Jim, your comments are great. You know, language matters. We're calling it protection now because that is not a product term. It's a needs based term, which is exactly how it should be positioned. And I think the more our industry uses the term protection as it relates to insurance products, the better. And let's hope that the advisors start using that term because any good advisor should say to their clients listen, my job is to help you not only grow your assets, but protect your assets. So let's talk about both sides of that ledger, right? That's the way it should be positioned. If you position it that way, the rest of the discussion is easy, right? So that advisor dialogue is something that we should be reinforcing. Yeah, I'm here to also help you protect your assets. Dan, you have a thought?
0: Yeah, so no question. This is, and I think Chris nailed it, and Jim as well, without protection, a proper financial plan or state plan is missing a critical function. At the end of the day, what we are seeing is over the next 25 years, $68 trillion will transfer through 45 million households to the next generation. That's according to Cerulean Associates. How are you going to protect those assets better than an estate plan or financial plan or protection plan? That has to be part of the big picture planning process for that to be effective in an advisor doing their fiduciary duty to maintain and secure clients' assets.
3: Well, so Dan, let me make one more comment, and I want to hand it off to Bob. We do have something we want to ask you guys about what I call the next-geners in a second, but Bob has a question ahead of that. But the comment you just made is very relevant, and this is the reason. A lot of our advisors today have gotten complacent with protection, the protection need, because they're dealing with clients that are very close to retirement and don't necessarily need the level of life insurance anymore because of the assets they've accumulated or all these other reasons, right? So they've gotten complacent. But now, because of that transfer of wealth, almost $70 trillion over the next 25 years, it's going to happen, and the need to attract those next-geners, millennials, Gen Zs, Gen Ys, insurance protection is important to them so they're going to have to rediscover how to have that dialogue or else they're going to be in a losing scenario so we're at an inflection point as it relates to protection and we need to drive that point home so good stuff and we're going to go back to this discussion about next genders in a second but bob let me hand it back to you because i know you have a follow-on question
6: exactly thanks scott and we just talked a lot about industry trends at a macro level for the industry Let's dig in a little bit more and ask each of you, what were your biggest aha moments in 2021 as it relates to success in programs that you work with? Is there anything that jumps out as a success factor in any of the programs that fall under your view? Jim, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, we had a couple of aha moments in 2021. First one is, it's about choice. And that old expression, where's the puck going, right? You want to skate to where the puck is going. So, having the right set of choices is critical. And what I mean by that is when you think about the broker dealers or wealth management firms, everybody has an advisory solution that they make available within their own firms to their advisors and ultimately to the end client. But, you know, Scott, you touched on RAAs a bit ago. And I think the importance of having an RAA solution has become equally critical. So, you think about traditional. Transaction based, commission based business. You think about doing advisory business through your broker dealer or wealth management firm. You think about leveraging some of the TAMPs out there, the asset marks, the SEIs, those have increased in popularity. But then you think about what an RAA does, right? So it provides a client, a member, access to potentially a Schwab environment, a fidelity environment. And making sure that those are available to the end client, because you want to look at this business through the lens of the client. And what are they familiar with? Well, they know the name Schwab. They know the name Fidelity. Those could be represented in terms of your arsenal to make it available. So one of the things that we did at our firm is we actually have our own in-house RAA solution. We call it Arbor Point, but it gives our advisors and their clients access to a Schwab, to a Fidelity in-house. So we also welcome outside RAA's that want to do that, too. So we sort of have this open architecture to provide choice, because what our advisors and their clients are saying, we want a choice. We know of these other firms. We don't know exactly what you have internally because we're not historically familiar with it. So having that choice, I think, is really, really important. And that was one of the big aha moments I saw in 21 is people demanding more choice. And the growth of RAAs across our industry is just ballooned. So banks and credit unions need to take advantage of that. If they don't, they're going to miss. And we can't afford to have that. We can't just always stick to the original game plan. We have to be able to pivot as the industry changes. So that's number one. The other thing I noticed is, as it relates to our programs, GDC is becoming a bit of an outdated term. The new term is AUA and AUM, right? So we're judging our business success on AUA and specifically AUM as a percentage of AUA. So that's where the I think the puck is going. And that's a big part of it right now and, and how we evaluate bringing in new advisors to our programs. Are they bringing in assets? Where are they at? That's a really big focus for it. And then lastly, I just want to you know make a general comment that I kind of had as an aha moment just about branches in general. We have this concept that because of the explosion in our digital service delivery because of the pandemic, that branches are dead. And I, I would almost present a argument says branches aren't dead. They still serve a very, very important function out there. It's part of a brand strategy in many cases. When you think about banks or credits, if they didn't have a physical location, then you know, they wouldn't have that big branding opportunity in their local community. So there's a perceived consumer value when you think about the actual physical branch. It communicates legitimacy, safety in some regard, the soundness of the fiscal health of the institution. Those are all really, really important. It is critical to the brand awareness and part of the broad service strategy that a banker crediting might have. So I would say one of the things that I started thinking about early in the pandemic, yeah, we don't need branches. No, we actually do need branches because they serve a much greater purpose. And they may be repurposed. They may serve a different role. They may be more community-based meetings and forums that might take place within the branches. They might be local innovation labs, things like that. So they're being repurposed or rethought because we're not going to get that branch traffic. So uh, it's just a couple of aha moments that I experienced this year.
3: And Jim, without
1: branches, we couldn't have had
3: that crescendo scene. And it's a wonderful life since we're in the holiday season. I had to mention that, right? (laughs) Great,
6: great point. Uh, But there's so much there, and I I want to jump on exactly the branch thing just for a second because we're seeing that thing in retail in general. Everyone's buying on the internet, but people still like to go into Target or whatever retail store to see something, and they want to see the bank. They want to see the person who's behind the Zoom call or the statement or whatever, so I think that's really important. Let me go back to the terminology point that you mentioned because AUM, I've been waiting for that to pop because... GDC is what we all still talk about. And ultimately, it's going to be something with AUM. So can you just just expand on that just a little bit more? What specifically do you think the new measurement might be?
1: Yeah. So from where I've said, when we look at the success of an institution investment program, GDC is always going to be a number we look at, right? It's always going to be there. We're going to have a hard time moving that off the shelf but AUM, meaning advisory assets, that recurring revenue stream going forward is critical to the longevity and the growth of an institutional investment program. AUA is just a word for everything, right? What are the total assets that the institution manages or the investment program manages? AUM is really that recurring component of it. So that's where the growth opportunity needs to exist and needs to be going forward. And that's why we're so heavily focused on that. I think Certainly at our firm, and I think all the firms here on this call, you know, with Chris and Dan, they're focused on the same thing, because this is where the puck is going, and this is the way we need to rethink our business model, AUM. So I'll leave it at that for now. Appreciate that. And the puck is
6: going right to you, Chris. You've got the puck. What are you going to do with it, man? <laughs> well, I, I, I think, I
2: think there are the recurring, recurring revenue is exactly right. AUM is exactly right. You know, one of the things we really look at at an advisor level, at a program level, is ROA as well, which is also you know saying, what is that return on those assets, which is really driving the AUM and driving the fee-based in the advisory business. So it's all wrapped together. But that's a number that we track, and, and we track improvement on ROA by advisor. And that's all part of our coaching and training and development group. And, and, and one of the aha moments we talked about was, there's a study out from Sorelli that this, this last year that looks at, are people willing to pay for advice? And from 2008, that number has gone from around 70% to up over 80% with people who strongly agree with that number moving from 40 to 56. Now, what does paying mean? Does that necessarily mean we're stroking a check for a financial plan? Well, maybe, but it really talks about how advisors are packaging the delivery of their value proposition and their service model, and that's partially paying for the advice that they're giving them and the planning and the protection point and all those other pieces, and that's really very important going forward. That's where we've got to go, and that's where our plan, our business development advisory and business development group, which is our coaching group headed up by Dave Bressler, who I think has been on this podcast before, that's really where his group focuses. And What we have seen is that when we're working with advisors and programs on delivering that advice, which is a shift generally towards advisory, that they're seeing 27% greater high-value client acquisition than advisors who don't. They're seeing 25% more growth in financial planning. And you talked about that earlier today as well. And 53% in net new asset flow. So we know it works, but what we've got to do is we've got to stay focused on helping the advisors become more efficient using the technology as we build out and improve our technology and the client experience. So those things all come together, just as Jim said.
6: What's your take on the brain situation with what you're
2: seeing? I think, the you know, look, We've talked about this a lot, and Scott's talked about it a lot. There is no question, and we're going to get to some questions today about Gen Z and some of the other folks. You know, I'm holding up a phone. You can't see that on a podcast, right? They do everything on their phone. I don't think the branch system is dead. I think that they're talking with advisors and programs and recruiting them, and they're still very active in the branches and they're very engaged. So it's the age old problem. You know, can we truly get integration inside of there? I don't think that goes away. I think we have to be very, very focused on getting in the way, as Scott says, of the digital traffic too, in addition to the branch traffic. Yeah,
3: Good, Scott, yeah. So I have, a, let's talk about where the puck is going. So I have a challenge for you guys relative to the AUM model. If you really want to talk about where the puck is going, let's get out of our bubble, right? Let's look at the independent space and the RIA space. What's going to be a critical measurement going forward? We'll see how many years forward but it is the amount of fees for service being charged because that's exactly where the puck is going in other channels. The best advisors outside of our channel are dramatically increasing their fee for service model, not AUM, because what is AUM? It's fees for assets under management. Do advisors manage the assets? They don't. What are you paying advisors for? You're paying advisors for their advice and their guidance. So the new model has to be, well, what is that worth? And what are you as an advisor or a firm going to charge for that advice and guidance? It really does not have much to do with the amount of assets under management. And you're limiting your ability to generate revenues because the AUM model will only enable you to work with people who have enough assets So you can make money. That just doesn't work because you have these next-geners that are making enough money to pay you an annual or a quarterly fee, but maybe don't have enough saved assets yet for you to make money off of in an AUM model. So that's where the puck is going, right? Because those next-geners are the wealthy clients of, a lot of them are wealthy clients of today, but certainly the wealthy clients of tomorrow. And they are now a bigger part of the workforce than baby boomers right? They've surpassed us. Last year, they surpassed us. They're in their prime earning years. They are willing to pay for advice. They're willing to pay for a white glove service, even if they don't have enough assets saved for it to make sense for you under an AUM model. That's going to be the next key measure of success. We'll see. Fact check me three years from now. We'll see where we are.
6: (laughs) (laughs) And this is the last reference to hockey because Dan's on goalie with aha moments. (laughs) The puck's coming right at you, Dan. All right.
0: I got the puck. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, I mean, fantastic discussion so far. And I think the aha moments are many across the board. I think one area that we saw, and it goes to this whole thing, the topic we'll get to in a second, also surround gamification of investing, as I'll call it, right? That was an aha moment, I think, all the way across the board where we saw how that really worked out, not in our investors' favor, right? And I think that placed a lot of faith in who our advisors are, the purpose they serve, and the justification for their fees, whether it's an AUA model, Scott, or an AUM model going forward. The value that they provide is undisputed. Online brokerages going down, meme stocks popping and then blowing up. Some of these online firms unable to post enough net capital to actually clear the trades. We didn't see any of that. And my partners on this call, their firms didn't see any of that. But some other online brokerages did, and it was not to the benefit of their clients. So hopefully we're through that. And that was a, an aha where we see the need to spend money to help our advisors compete, To help our advisors be more effective in in what they do and more efficient in what they do and to where we're looking across the board to spend almost a billion dollars a year in this category so our advisors can continue to meet the needs of their clients over the long term also on that same theme outsourcing with a partner and having someone take the keys to their wealth management business and all my partners are in the third-party marketer space on this call would agree that outsourcing is here to stay right so Our programs rely on all of us to be that engine, to be that wealth management offering, provide the brokerage services, the advisory, the protection, the technology, the financial planning, the integration, all of these components that go into helping our advisors compete with the Fidelities and the Schwab and the other direct-to-consumer channels and provide that advice that's critical for helping our investors reach their long-term financial plans.
6: Really important. And the whole gamification conversation, I think it was Jim that mentioned before that during the pandemic, there was an increase in the trust of organizations, of banks, and an increase in the trusted advisor status. So I think that is absolutely important. Let's go back to outsourcing is here to stay. Any challenges with that, do you think, in the industry? I mean, your organization in particular has really been on a a trajectory in that respect with some larger organizations.
0: So, Bob, in our discussions, with both our clients and our prospective clients it really boils down to how much risk they want to take on in running their own broker dealer how much technology budget do they have to continue to compete and be relevant in the space and it really boils down to that they simply just don't have the resources capacity and appetite for risk to continue to operate their broker dealers at scale So we think that outsourcing is only gonna increase from here. We're gonna expand into a number of other different verticals. So you'll see this not only continue to expand in the financial institution market segment, you're gonna see it in insurance, you're gonna see it in asset managers, you're gonna see it in investment banking, that non-core businesses are going to be less and less important to the overall enterprise and is a better strategy to outsource, maintain your brand, do a DBA so your brand can maintain intact and enable you to compete over the long-term.
6: Very interesting. We're back to, it's back to protection, risk aversion. You know, that's just <laughs> a, a much at a much higher level for sure. Absolutely. With that, I'm gonna to say toss it over. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Dan is keeping the puck, so I can't. I can't. Uh-huh. Help. There we go. Exactly. My point exactly. <laughs> All right, but Dan, I am going to keep you on point. I said I'm going to throw this next question to you, and then I want to hear from Jim and Chris as well. But and really, this question is triggered by the gamification thing. So when we say gamification and investing, what does everybody think? Robinhood, right? That's the first app you think of. Well, Robinhood is being used by who? Primarily the next geners, right? And what is Robinhood doing? Well, Robinhood is an active investing app, and they gamify active investing, possibly to a fault.
0: (laughs) Right, right. right.
3: Now, here's the interesting thing. So they're attracting the next-geners, who we desperately need to attract, because if we rely on the baby boomers, we're in a game of musical chairs, the music's going to stop, we're not going to have a chair to sit in once those next-geners have all the wealth, right? Right. So it's important for us to attract the next-geners. But they're not attracted to us right now. They're attracted to the Robinhoods. They're attracted to the Acorns. They're attracted to the SoFi's, the Wellfronts, et cetera. Now, we did a podcast with, and we haven't released it yet, with Bill Capuzzi, the CEO of Apex Clearing, who's the engine behind a lot of these apps, right? And he said, mark my words, it won't be long before Robinhood releases a passive investing part of their app, right? And what are they already doing? They're already offering banking services to their clients. Well, where the hell does that put our channel? Not in a good place, right? So how are we going to compete? So the question is, how important are those next geners? I think we've answered that, very important. What do we have to do as a channel to attract those next geners? Because right now their assets are elsewhere. And how are we going to get them? Because that's critical, right? So Dan, let me, that's a tough question, but let me toss that to you first, and then I, I'd like to hear from the rest of you.
0: Yeah, Scott. I mean, this, I think, is the question, right? And it's something that I think we've done a pretty poor job of so far. But the good news is that there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. I look at it, we're not cool. We're not as sexy as a Robin Hood or some of these other speak, more speak dynamic. yourself, Dan.
3: <laughs> right?
0: There's a bumper sticker that I see occasionally on the back of a minivan where it says, I used to be cool right? And that to me is, is kind of, if that isn't a meme for you know some of our channel, it's banking is old to these Gen Zers, right? These names are like, they're just so old school. So what do we do, right? How do we really get them excited about who we are and the value that we can really bring? And it's in the data. The survey points to baby boomers trust us the most, Gen Zers trust us the least. But why do they trust us the least? Were they burned? Did we do something wrong? I think some of it has to do with They'd see us as a poor performer in terms of what their bank account does. Look at the annual percentage yields, the APYs on banks. One basis point on a savings account or something like that, right? So CD rates are poor. It's the environment they grew up in. The new normal is zero interest rates, therefore zero, almost zero yield to our clients, I think they feel slighted by us, right? And that we just haven't performed for them like we did perform for the baby boomers and the other generations in the past. So, so what do we do, right? And there's really kind of two contexts for what we say attract the next geners. It's as an employee and an slash advisor, right? That's one context. As an investor, That's another context. And it's really kind of two things, right? Because as our advisors are aging out, how do we get the new Gen Yers and millennials and Gen Z's in to service these new Gen Z investors? And how do we attract them from a consumer direct model? How do we attract them from an advisor assisted model? There's a number of channels like Bill Capuzzi points out that some of our other channels are attracting. There's passive strategies, there's active strategies, there's robo strategies, there's all these things that they are going to be rolling out that we have to be able to support as well. So investment advisory, a low cost of entry advisory platform, digital processing, a absolutely robust front end and consumer portal that's integrated with all their other products that are out there. They want one place to look. They want to be able to transact in a matter of minutes, be flexible with their product offerings. And while they don't have the money today, Ruli tells us with the almost $70 trillion that's going to transfer, they will have the money on a go-forward basis. We'd better be prepared. And frankly, I just don't feel we are quite yet. And creating that sexier environment for them, I think, is key. And giving them a collaborative environment where they can thrive, That's a lot more fun than what a bank is. Is a bank fun to you, right? A bank just doesn't appear to be fun, right? So I think we have a little bit of a a branding and just personality change that we have to adapt to what these growing needs are of the next
3: generation. Yeah, that change our culture a little bit, right? So I have another part of that thinking process is do we need an app that our clients, a white labelable app that our clients can release as part of that equation, right? Because they do everything on their phones, And a responsive website is just not good enough. It has to be an app, right? So I think that's part of it. And we've
0: seen some programs that have gone forward with robo strategy as part of their their overall offering. A lot of it was more of a client segmentation type strategy where they were able to service a lower mass market price point and investing dollar value at under a $10,000 account. And some of those programs have abandoned them due to lack of
3: success. So they didn't work. Right? Well, so,
0: what, so now, what do we do?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, they didn't know how to integrate them. They're web based, they're not yeah. app based, right? They didn't understand the value of what I'll call the robo assisted advisor, right? Uh, you know, so we're still getting there, right? I mean, we first rolled out financial planning, that didn't work either. It's finally starting to work now. So it's a curve. So I want to, Jim, I I know you have a thought, and and Chris, you too. I'm going to pass it to you first, Jim. But I need to tell you about a bumper sticker that I saw, Dan. (laughs) So you saw the one that I used to be cool. I saw one that said, I may be old, but I saw all the good bands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I agree. (laughs) So with that, I'll pass it to Jim, who I also know is passionate about music. But I don't think that's what your comment is about, is it, Jim?
1: (laughs) It's not. And I could go down that road all day long. <laughs> actually own a 1999 VW Eurovan. That is pretty cool, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I think we all need a ride on it. <laughs> there you go. That said, you know, one of the things that Dan touched on that I just want to bring up again is the issue of our aging advisors. So if I'm a young investor or a young investor have some wealth, I'm probably not going to want to do business with a baby boomer advisor. They're not going to be able to necessarily relate to me. So I think that's a big challenge for our industry is to get younger. And, you know, we have a program on our firm at Securities America called our Next Gen Program, where we invite and we look for those younger advisors. We bring them in, we educate them on our industry. We try to get them to see if becoming an advisor is something that they have an appetite for. So we get excited about that. But again, aging advisors, that's a real issue. And again, these younger investors may not want to do business with those folks. So That's an issue that we have to solve. But the other thing is just how do you attract these folks and you have to meet them where they spend their time, right? So social media didn't exist when I was in my twenties and thirties, but now it's where people live. So meeting them on a social media venue or platform is is becoming increasingly critical. I I know so much marketing and prospecting is done via LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook, I've even heard somebody promoting seminars on TikTok. And it was like, how did that happen? They they engaged with influencers to really drive attendance for virtual marketing opportunities. And it's like, wow, I didn't even think about that. But there's also mediums like Vidyard, which is a video marketing platform to really promote who you are and do it at the level of your prospect or your client. But those are things that I think exist already today that we need to do a much better job uh, incorporating into our everyday institution investment programs. Yeah, self-directed, Robinhood, you know, Robo, they exist. And, and we've seen over the decades, even a roller coaster of success with them. You know, one minute they get marketed, hey, we have to have a self-directed solution. And then we find only three people at the bank even want to deal with it. And the traditional customers don't. So what is the right answer? I think the key is having those things available. It's almost like a necessary evil. But we're in the advice business at the end of the day. But what does that still work for that younger investor? So those are just some quick thoughts.
3: Yeah. And I think to a degree, the apps are harvesting tools, right? There are ways for us to get those next-geners in our door. And then in the perfect world scenario, those apps have to have triggers that send messages to advisors that say, you may want to call this person because this just happened, right? And at the same time, those apps have to have a button so the next-gener can press that and say, yeah, I'm at the point where I need help from a real advisor. Call me, right? I mean, that. so it has to have that type of integration. Chris.
2: Well, I think it's exactly right. We were at the QSO and Scott hosted a panel here a month or so ago and the room was packed and it was all about this question, right? It was packed with bankers primarily, you know, the credit union bankers and they're thinking about it. So, you know, and we as third party partners of them, outsource partners to them, we're going to have to bring that leadership to them as well, because it's a really tough model, right? If we think about our core business and what we do, Jim we, and Dana both said it, you know, we've got, first of all, we got older advisors who may not relate, but we also, we're just talking about AUM and all those other things and ROA. Well, this segment of the business is not really pretty for that, right? So, but at the same time, we've got to think about what's going to happen five and 10 years down the road. Ameriprise in some ways, got into this side of the business by accident a long time ago when we were part of American Express because they were trying to market more investment things to cardholders, if you will. Well, what that thing has turned into for us is a digital advice center. We have 200 advisors in there, 450,000 clients inside that thing. When I first saw that, when I came over to Ameriprise, I was like, man, we got to find a way to put this inside of our financial institutions, right, for all kinds of reasons. There's still work to be done, and we're beginning to to test pilot that in different ways. We're seeing institutions as they transition to Ameriprise, thinking about book segmentation and putting some of those clients who haven't been touched for a long period of time, let's say under 100,000, into the advice center, digital advice center, et cetera. And and it's beginning to work. It's not perfect yet, but we've got to go there. The other great thing about this is that's our proving and growing ground for, for young advisors. We bring them in, we put them into a service model that's rigorous, they get licensed, they move into a sales assistant role, then move into a full advisor role, and then some of them move off into specialty areas like insurance, protection, planning, et cetera. And it's working. It's just we've got to get it deeper into our financial institutions because the thing they say that surprises me, well, that's going to compete with my branch-based advisor. I go, you got 3% household penetration. It's another division for you. you got to think about this, right? So anyway, we've got to get passionate as third-party broker-dealers about it too.
3: Yeah. And I'm curious, Chris, so do your advisors that are in that remote advisor center, do they all have to be physically in that remote advisor center in Minneapolis or wherever, or are you starting to employ them spread out across the country? Obviously we went
2: virtual, right? We had to go virtual with everybody. So we have two advice centers. We don't call them call centers because we're really not. One in Vegas and one in Minneapolis. So they are a team. And so because they are a team, we feel that working in an environment where they huddle and talk and, and it, we think, so we think there's positive to that. Now, right. do we think that in larger institutions, we could build out teams and put them in there? Because the, the institutions have struggled with that. Very few have been successful at creating kind of a centralized small account or call center type of environment because it takes a lot of rigor and structure to do it. So I think the answer is it can absolutely work both ways, but there's got to be a infrastructure and discipline around it, if that
6: makes sense.
3: Yeah, that totally makes sense. All right, so I'm going to hand it back to Bob. He has the best question of the day, I think. And it, it is our
6: lightning round as well. We're going to have some fun with this. Bring the bell. Oh, I like
3: it. Sound effects.
1: <laughs>
6: Pick one of the following. We'll start with Chris this time around. What was the best movie you saw, new album you discovered, concert you went to, or sporting event that you attended in 2021? Chris. Brooks and Dunn live in St. Louis. Bought the tickets in 2019.
2: Finally got to see him around Labor Day (laughs) of this year. Funny story. Moved. Changed my email. took me a month and a half to find the tickets. You know, I was in a full-on panic. But we went back to St. Louis and had a great time seeing Brooks and Dunn live.
1: All right, Jim. Yeah, best live performance I saw this year was at the San Diego Blues Fest. I saw a young 22-year-old blues guitar phenom by the name of Kingfish kingfish ingram he was amazing yeah he's going places
6: all right dan
1: i had
0: about i don't know three or four concerts canceled in 2021 and some were canceled permanently some were just rescheduled for next year let's hope that they happen but in just this month, I took my 16-year-old daughter to her first really indoor venue at the Fillmore in San Francisco, which is an Ooh. incredible place. And everybody from the dead, to Janice, to today's pop stars have, have played there. And you walk around and you see all these historic photos on the wall. And so she didn't really get that. I, I mean, I kind of showed her, look at all this stuff, right? And she was there to see Beach Bunny. And it was hilarious. It was a lot of fun. It was a younger all-ages show. All the millennials were up on the stage. And she asked, she goes, all right we're going to have to set up a mosh pit for this next song. And she goes, you guys know what a mosh pit is, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, It was go. questionable, the answer. I'm not <laughs> really sure they they, uh, they got it, but that was a lot of fun.
6: Now, now, here's the first. I don't think I've ever asked Scott a question on these podcasts. And this is our 16th podcast. Scott.
3: Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I, actually have, a, I have, actually have an answer. And it's, it's right in line because it's a concert, too. I went to see for the first time a band called Need to Breathe. Do any of you guys know the band Need to Breathe? They were phenomenal. It's Just such a great concert. And, and that Need to Breathe is spelled as one long word. You should look them up. They're a band that just has a lot of passion behind them. It, it just a great blew me away. I never expected it. It was one of the best concerts I ever saw. Yeah, so they were, they yeah. were, they were great. Yeah. So, hey, Bob, what about you? Well, actually, for me, that's why I just moved the
6: camera around. I was at a University of Miami Hurricanes football game. That didn't end well. It was on September 30th. They lost on the last play. Some guy couldn't hit a 30-yard field goal. But in any event, it felt normal. We did tailgating. It was packed. It was Hard Rock Stadium. And it just felt like it was normal. It was a terrible ending to lose in the last two seconds, but it just, it was cool to be there. I'll drink to normal.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, And that, I think, brings us to a close. I think it does. So listen, thank you guys for a very engaging discussion. It was great. I think it's awesome just kind of getting on as, as you know, friends that are all focused on the same objective and that is helping our channel increase our competitiveness in the overall industry. So thanks for the cooperation. Thanks for the camaraderie. I really look forward to seeing you guys in person in the end of February at BISA. So much appreciated, Bob. I know you have some last comments that you'd like to make and then we'll sign off.
6: Absolutely. And those that are listening know, we always end with a big thank you to our panel. So thank you to Chris, Jim and Dan. And thanks to the BISA for their partnership with this podcast series. Jeff Hartney in particular, thank you. Janet Capoletti, thank you for all the work on the research. To all our listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe to this series and our other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, and also our other series, Untangling Fintech. These are all available wherever you find your other podcasts. I believe that's a wrap. Thank you for listening.
3: Happy New Year. All right, bye everybody.
4: Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories and untangling FinTech aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.